One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Marianne Harris. Welcome to The Rockstar and The Nanny, the new podcast from the true crime series, New Idea Investigates. Some listeners may find some of the content in this podcast distressing. Penny Hill had left her home in country Narrabri to start her first job as a nanny, looking after the three small children of Cole Bajant, former Aussie rock star with the band Billy Thorpe, and the Aztecs. And three days later, she was dead. This is the work of a bad man. A bad man's done this. I never thought I would go 27 years and still not know. Who would protect a mongrel like that? And the pain hasn't gone away. Please help us. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. You sit down mother and to mother and tell another mother what may have happened to her daughter. I feel a bit of a failure because I didn't save her. Seeing your daughter like that, who's virtually unrecognisable, would be just terrible. You believe she could have known her killer? Oh, without a doubt. Did you kill Penny Hill? Penny Hill, only 20 years old, had been brutally bashed and left for dead against a gatepost in Coolar, country New South Wales. The tiny northwest town of Coolar is in shock tonight after the brutal bashing of a young woman. 20-year-old Penny Hill was dumped and left for dead by the road outside town. Just three days earlier, the smiling, bubbly Penny had left her home in the small town of Narrabri to start her very first job as a nanny, looking after the three small children of former Aussie rock star Cole Bajant and his wife Barbara. Penny was rushed to hospital and two weeks later died from her injuries. She never regained consciousness and was never able to point the finger at her killer. 27 years later, and it is one of Australia's most baffling and heartbreaking cold cases. Her devastated mum, Jeanette, had agreed to do this podcast in the hope of finding the last piece of the jigsaw that will finally see justice for her only daughter. You never give up hope that one day somebody, you know, will come forward or someone that knows something. It's hard not knowing. Very hard. And I never thought I would go 27 years and still not know. Very early on in the investigation, homicide detectives had homed in on the Motel Cook, Bob Lee, as prime suspect. 
Bob ticked a lot of boxes for the detectives. He knew the victim, he was working at the motel the night Penny was attacked, he was a loner, and he had a criminal record. On the night of the crime, Bob, a firearms enthusiast, claimed he'd returned to the caravan park just a few hundred metres from the motel where he lived. There was a party at the caravan park that night and eyewitnesses have backed up Bob's story. They told detectives they'd seen Lee going into his caravan, his four-wheel drive parked nearby. Bob claimed he'd never left the caravan again that night and the witnesses at the party backed up his story. None of them remembered seeing him leave again or move his car. With no eyewitnesses to crack his alibi, no forensic evidence to link him to the crime and no obvious motive, detectives had to dismiss Bob as a suspect. Her uncle Dennis believes that one of the things that may have got Penny into trouble was her personality. He says she was too naive and trusting. Oh, she was a bubbly personality, very trusting girl, which is probably a little unfortunate. She um, maybe a little naive, but um, a trusting girl and didn't suspect anybody. Mm. She, she would have been not aware of a lot of all, all the dangers that are around from people who would take advantage of her. And she was looking forward to her job, wasn't she? She was, yes. Mm. Even though it meant she was going to move away from home, she was excited. Oh, I think so, yeah. She was She was happy to... I think she was happy to leave home and, and venture out a little bit in life and experience life and get to know people and that type of thing. Detective Sergeant Jason Darcy from the Western Region Unsolved Homicide Squad, who's been running the cold case since 2008, agrees with Dennis. Probably just a green country girl who um, trusted everyone um, and, you know, honest as the day is long. So, yeah, she's just like any, any, anyone's uh, daughter that, uh, who's grown up and was going off to, to uh, new adventures in, in, uh, in, in a work and a career and that. So, yeah, she was very excited. We, we interviewed all her um, classmates at TAFE and her friends in Narrabri and, and they all talk about how excited she was. What was the setup there at Cooler? Who were these people that she was going to go and work for? Well, she, she, uh, she accepted the role as a uh, nanny for uh, Colin and Barbara Bajan who ran the uh, local motel down in Coolar. Um, Colin was a, uh, a former drummer with Billy Forp and the Aztecs and uh, a bit of a muso and he, he moved his family out to Coolar for a new um, uh, career change. Um, so, yeah. Penny's protective mum and dad drove her to Coolar on the Friday to help her settle in. Did you know much about the family that she was going to work for? No, I didn't really know anything about them at all, only that they were at the motel. Yeah, and that's where the job was. So you took her down there on the Friday? We took her there on the Friday, yeah. It's Penny's movements in those crucial hours from when she arrived at the motel on Friday morning and her brutal attack on the Sunday night that detectives have, over the years, painstakingly tried to piece together. Look, Penny, um, she arrived on the Friday. Um, her parents brought her down from Narrabri. Uh, she's Friday night, she stayed in one of the rooms inside the, um, the Bajan's house, which was on the side of the motel. Um, so she was there the next day. She, she um, 
Uh, she went about her duties looking after the children, uh, took them for walks, um, and and so on. That 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 night, um, Penny watched the movies with one of the um, local um, one of the other employees from the mo- from the motel. They watched the movies, and she went home. She walked home, and she stayed home by herself on the uh, Saturday night. She sort of moved out of the Bajan's uh, residence and into one of the rooms on the end of the motel. So this is probably the first clue to what happened to Penny. That first day she arrived, she'd stayed with the Bajan's in their home that was next to the motel. She was put up in a spare room, but the next day, on the Saturday, Barbara Bajant moved her out of their home and into one of the motel rooms. Why? Was it always the intention she would stay in a motel room? If so, why did they invite her to spend the first night in the family's house? Was it because the motel had no rooms free for Penny on that first night? Certainly one of the biggest difficulties the first homicide investigation faced was just how busy the tiny town of Kula had been on that fateful weekend. There was not one, but three major sporting events, a golf tournament, a tennis competition, and a rugby league game. That would no doubt have made it a massive challenge for you guys. It's been a big challenge. Obviously, we we when we started uh, conducting further inquiries into Penny's case, we wanted to uh, really, you know, don't leave any stone unturned. So, you know, we went out and interviewed uh, all the golfers that were there, or the majority of all the golfers that were there. Um, all the all the, basically anyone was in in Coolow on that weekend. We've 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 been interviewing. How many people would you say you've interviewed in Penny's case over the years? Oh, look, I don't want to put a figure on it. Been hundreds, hundreds of people. Um, we've collected uh, a mass amount of um, DNA, and I've got to um, say that the Kular people have been um, tremendous in their support and helping us try and close this case for the family. They, they helped us with information. They volunteered DNA samples and ever, any inquiries we made or re- requests made, they, they were happy to help out. So, you know, the people cool are, you know, they're, they're keen to get closure as well. I suppose it's a shadow looming over their town. Yeah, it's not good. It's, you know, it, uh, you know, no one likes um, these sort of stories, but especially, you know, a young girl, young young girl's just, you know, found on the side of the road, you know, just being cast off like like um, rubbish. And, you know, it's not good. And it, it affects all people, like uh, all the people there and, and everyone, like, you know, just the way someone has treated Penny on that, on that night and then just discarded on the side of the road without giving her any sort of help is pretty low. Do you think she was left for dead? Yeah, without a doubt. Someone's, someone's left her there, they've panicked, left her there and... Um, yeah, just yeah, showing no remorse whatsoever. School teacher Susan Brown was driving on a wet and cold wintry morning in the small New South Wales town of Coola when she spotted something on the side of the road. As she pulled up and took a closer look, she realised it was a girl slumped against the gate of a large rural property. It was obvious that she had been hurt around the head and there was blood on her face and her features were swollen. And that's all that really needs to be said. Mm. I don't know. I didn't know what had happened to her head. 
I just could see that her features were swollen and there was blood there. And that that the blood that was on her face wasn't it looked um it looked smudged, not not um like it had freely flowed. There wasn't a lot of there was no blood at the scene other than on the gate. There was a bit on the gate about level with her shoulder, I guess. And it, and it, that was on the bottom rung of the gate. What were her injuries? Oh, look, there was she basically. Um, she was just severely, severely bashed. Um, um, you know, and you look at the photos of what Penny, you know, the photos that um, that's been out in the media, and you look what how well uh, she was on that day. It was just horrendous. She wouldn't have recognised her. How awful for her mum and her family to have Well, that's right. You know, you look at, um, you know, the Hill family or any other family, like getting a phone call and, and rushing down to the uh, the Kula hospital and, and seeing your daughter like that, who's virtually unrecognisable, would be just terrible. On the Sunday evening that Penny was attacked, she'd had two phone conversations. The first was with her mum at 730 but we talked to her on the phone on Sunday night, the 7th of July, and she was so happy. And then all this happened after that, probably around about 8 o'clock at night, we spoke to her on the phone. What did she say? Oh, she was so happy about the job and whatever, and, yeah. She was in with the family until they had a room for her, and then they put her in a room of the motel for her to stay in that part because it wouldn't be big enough like where the family lived. But that was all right. She was quite happy with that. So Penny had told her mum the reason she'd moved out to the motel room was because the family home wasn't big enough. Penny didn't seem to mind and told her mum she was happy enough. So she seemed in good spirits. She'd yes, been enjoying she the few days that she yeah, was there. she did. And also the people at the time at the hotel were... Narrowbrow people, so she knew those people as well. So, by all accounts, to you, she was comfortable and happy and was settling in. She was. She was. The Narrowbrow people that Jeanette talks about were a family called the Regans. They were running a local hotel in Kula. We'll hear more about them a bit later on. But firstly, the second telephone conversation that Penny had that night, this time with her boyfriend Shane Williams at about 9 pm. So you believe she spoke to her boyfriend Shane after she spoke to her mum that Sunday evening? Definitely, yeah. She spoke to Shane, um, and uh, basically Shane was probably the last person to talk to her. Barbara was um, Barbara Bajant was sitting in um, in the um, restaurant area of the motel with one of the employees. Um, um, they went and got the got. Um, Penny from her room. She went out and spoke to Shane. Um, they had a conversation, uh, and then uh, Penny uh, had a, uh, spoke briefly with Barbara, and then re- went back to her room. It is Penny's movements after that phone call with her boyfriend which are the mystery. One major clue was that Penny was found brutally bashed 800 metres down the road from the motel. She was still clutching in her hand the broken cord of a kettle. What else do you remember that morning 
the, of the scene? Do you, what did Penny have? You know, there were reports that she was found with an electrical cord in her hand. What do you remember of that? She had the end of a, um, a you know, the Bakelite end of a jug cord. Only the end, the end that you stick into the kettle. That was beside her right hand. And only, uh, and I looked at it and I thought it was a beeper because in those days some people wore beepers. Mm-hmm. But then I could see it wasn't a beeper, but I didn't know what, you know, I sort of didn't know what it was, whether that was shock or whatever. And then the, when the ambulance driver came, he saw it too, and he picked it up. He thought, is this a beeper? And he picked it up. He was the only person who touched it. And he picked it up and realised it wasn't a beeper, and he threw it out further. But it was just near her right hand, not touching her right hand, but very close to her right hand. Mm-hmm. She was found with an electrical cord in her hand. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, that electrical cord um, was from the motel room and um, obviously we believe it was linked to um, to her, how her demise, how she, you know, it's linked to the offence, I could probably say is the best thing. Um, Do you think the killer tried to strangle her with it? Oh look, there's 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 information there. I I sort of don't want to speculate too much about that, but yeah, you know, the, 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 there was a cord out of the motel room that was found there. One of the biggest problems for the investigation has been that detectives have never been able to find the scene of the crime. And this is where Penny was found the next morning. No one can explain what happened in those hours between the motel and here. It was as if. She'd fallen from the sky. Penny's motel room was processed by forensics and immediately ruled out. The only blood found in room 14 was a small spittle in the bathroom basin. Penny had been brutally bashed to within an inch of her life. Her injuries so horrific that had she been attacked in her motel room, it would have been left as an horrendous bloodbath. Detectives are also certain Penny was not killed where she was found on the side of the road. The soles of her boots were not dirty and there were no drag or shoe marks near her, even though it had been a wet, dewy morning when she was bashed. Detectives were certain that Penny had been attacked somewhere else and then carried to the roadside and dumped like a bag of rubbish. Her clothes weren't at all dishevelled. She had... The only, um, only thing that I could see that was different about her clothes was that um, she had grey tracksuit pants on and she had um, green grass stains and um, um, black, uh, well, mud stains as if she'd gone down on her knees at some stage. But apart from that, she didn't have anything. And then when they lifted her up and, and put her in, in the ambulance, you could see where Penny had laid. Um, there were deep indentations her, um, her bottom and her head um, in the in the soil there. How? And it, how? there was a heavy dew that morning too, and there were no tracks in the dew. There was the only tracks that I could see when the ambulance left were the tracks that the ambulance made. And she had um, grey tracksuit pants on, as I said, with the stains on them. Her rug boots were the sort of ankle length pink ones. And only her, her, one of her feet, I think it was her right foot, was ever so slightly, you know, her heel was ever so slightly out of the Ugg boot. And then she had a, um, 
a jumper on which was sort of a a bluey purple jumper <laughs> and I noticed um, a sort of a ferrule pattern across it. It was a store-bought jumper, it wasn't a hand-knitted jumper and un- sort of just peeking around the neck, just peeking over the top of that jumper was a um, a really old, um, what looked like a really old t-shirt and it had been red at some stage and it had been washed till it was sort of that brick red colour that old red t-shirts can go. Mm. And nothing on her hands or her head. And her hair, um, her hair was, um, you know, when you wash your hair and it's a bit longish, shoulder length hair, and you wash it, and it, it, when it's at the half dry stage, it goes sort of into rat tails. Yep. Her, her hair was at that rat tail stage. I don't know whether that's from being out all night or whether it was at that stage when she was put there. How was she found? Was she wearing any clothing and was there any evidence of sexual assault? Uh, look, there, there's, there was no evidence of sexual assault. She had a clothing on which, which was similar to what she was um, she was last seen in. So um, she had track pants and, and a top and Ugg boots. So it was, it, it's all inform- – it's – it would go to what we believe is like she she wasn't expecting to go out and meet her, um, like uh, she was going wasn't going out on a date or to meet someone to try and impress. Like she'd clearly settled in for the she'd evening. settled in for evenings probably the best word. Yeah, she she'd settled in, um, and and for that reason we believe she must have known the person who she she met up with that night. You believe she could have known her killer? Oh, without a doubt. So, even though Penny had only arrived in the town three days before her assault, Jason is convinced she knew her killer and that he had been in her motel room. But at the time of the first inquest, detectives were no closer to finding Penny's killer. Her mum, Jeanette, was devastated. How did you feel after the first inquest when it was virtually handed right back to investigators? Did you feel that you were at day one all over again? Well, it was a hard one because, you know, there could have been people there at the inquest that knew what happened. I don't know. And you kind of come out of there with no answers. So it's a roller coaster of emotions that you go in there with hope that you're going to have a resolution and then disappointment when it doesn't come to fruition. Talk me through the first inquest. Well, the first inquest, um, we weren't in, our squad wasn't involved in, that was the one in Mudgee. Um, I, it, it's hard to comment because I wasn't there. I got only of what I read on the on the transcripts. Um, and basically they, they've... They uh, obviously interviewed uh, Mr. Bajet and and a number of people from the motel on the time, and in a nutshell, they, the the coroner came back with an open finding that you know um, the cause and how Penny's death was still open and referred it back for in, in further investigations. It was virtually handed back to investigators, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. You then came on board in the investigation in, what, 2008, didn't you? That's right. How did you find it? What were you, were you picking up the pieces? Was it difficult for you to take this case on? When they regionalised the unsolved teams and 
we had, we had a, a team of investigators um, based in Tamworth and we were allocated Penny's case. Um, from, the, from the moment uh, we started looking into it, there was, we, we realised there was a mountain of work to do. There's still lots of, lots of inquiries to be conducted and a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of information that hadn't been checked or double-checked and that sort of thing. So we sort of set about doing doing that and that, and that took years, still taking years to, um, to, you know, finish off all those inquiries. What was your priority? Do you remember when you first took it on? Well, look, basically... Um, our priority was basically start fresh, fresh set of eyes, new investigators. Um, there was different techniques back um, back in uh, those days to what we were doing, and that's only you know that comes with a period of time. It's no criticism of anyone. It's just fresh eyes, different techniques, different um, strategies to use. So uh, we we just we just sort of break down the case to its simplest form and basically started again, started building on the foundation of working from from the start. So it was basically a fresh a fresh investigation. One of the many leads that had to be re-examined were claims by a neighbour living near the motel who claimed she heard screams on the night Penny was murdered. Leola Davis claimed she heard a woman pleading, help me, please help me, in the early hours of July 8. She checked on her sleeping children and when all was okay, decided it must have been a dream and went back to sleep. It wasn't until Mrs Davis heard about the brutal attack of Penny Hill that she realised the woman's cries might not have been a dream after all. At a second inquest into Penny's death at Tamworth Coroner's Court on the 21st of May 2012, Mrs Davis said the woman's voice had stayed with her and she couldn't get it out of her mind. It was very pleading. It was definitely a woman's voice, she said. Darcy's team believed that what Mrs Davis had heard was in fact a domestic dispute between golfer Ross Kitto, who was one of the many golfers playing at the tournament in Kula, and his then-girlfriend. Were there any uh, golfers or any other persons of interest that uh, that you needed to investigate? Yeah, they, look, we looked into the golfers. They were, they, obviously, um, we travelled over New Zealand and spoke to Ross Kiddo, who was a, a professional golfer at the time, and who was in um, who was in Kula, uh, who was staying at the Kula Motel that night, and uh, Ross um, had a. Uh, a domestic dispute with uh, his girlfriend on that night, which resulted in him getting his thumb bitten and losing his, his nail on his thumb and hadn't going to get treatment. And, and he was movements uh, through the night. Uh, and then his behaviour afterwards, obviously, was unusual. Um, you know, we went over to New Zealand, spoke to him and... Because uh, he, he could well, too, have been a suspect then if his movements were... A little um, erratic that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's right. So he he was definitely Ross's, and he he's a person of interest in the case. Um, so yeah, we we looked into Ross and, and his movements and his his history and that sort of thing. So that sort of just added more complexity to the case. So um, yeah, that you know yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of things going on in Kula which sort of made it difficult at the time to mm. 
sort of get down timelines for everyone and that. Kiddo's ex-girlfriend, Madeline Fian alleged at the second inquest into Penny's death that she had cried out when Ross attacked her in their motel room that Sunday night. She claimed at the inquest that Kiddo had sat on her, pinned her to the ground with his knees before pressing his fingers around her neck. The inquest heard that hotel staff came to Madeline's rescue and she didn't see Ross for the rest of the night. She told the inquest that when she heard about Penny's bashing, she thought Ross might have been responsible. What is known about Ross's movements that night is that he went to the local Kular hospital to get treatment for his finger. He claimed to detectives that after the trip to hospital, he went straight back to his motel room. Madeline, worried about her safety, had meanwhile decamped to another part of the motel with the help of motel staff. There is no evidence to support any suggestion he was involved. Another dramatic development in the cold case and the huge breakthrough that had led to the second inquest was the discovery of a secret compartment under Penny's bed where she had slept. The box was found in late 2010 after the new owners of the Black Stump Motel, Narelle and David, undertook renovations. It begged the question why the first team of investigators hadn't found it when it was so obviously placed right underneath the victim's bed. We will leave it there for today. Thank you for your company. I hope you can join me next time as we delve a little further into the unsolved murder of a 20-year-old young nanny named Penny Hill. If you have any information at all to contribute to this case, please email us, tips at pacificmags.com.au.